Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always, to an extent, well, at least half of it, uh, uh, my co-hosts, Drew, say hi. Hello. Hello. And filling in for Aaron this week, uh, we brought him back after his appearance, I think it was on episode four, possibly? Good episode. Very, uh, very unaware. It was, of maybe it was the strongest episode. Okay. Yep. Definitely the strongest episode. Uh, is, uh, is Shane. So uh, Shane, say hi. Hello. Thank you for having me back. That's all right. And uh, yeah, so this week we're looking at some, uh, some large rodents living in rivers possibly near you. We're also looking at some uh, new discoveries uh, from Australia, and I'm going to rant about some docu-fiction that Discovery and Animal Planet put forward a couple of years back. But uh, apart from that, we'll, uh, we'll roll straight into the news. It's the news! So, we're now into the news of this week, and I'm going to try not to cough throughout any of this. Don't worry, I don't have the Rona. Um, it's, it's just the common cold, which uh, so it's been fun. So, I, I sound a little bit different this week. Um, but to start us off with the news, Shane, as your guest, you, uh, you get to take it away. So, take it away about, uh, I think it's carbon. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, so I'm going to talk to you guys a bit about... It's more, it's more about uh, a new method of conservation. I say new, it came about in 2010, but it's still developing. And I personally find it fascinating because it seems to be very effective. And at its heart, it's something that I've always leaned towards as well. Uh, and that is purely and simply when it comes to conservation. A lot of people, I used to do this as well. It's very quick to fall into the pitfall of, oh, it's all humans' fault. I hate humans. Destroy all humans. And... To be fair, that may be a uh, resolution to the problem, but I don't think anyone's willing to carry it out. I mean, I'm personally not. Um, <clears throat> so, methods need to be found that work with local people in different areas around the world to protect their livelihoods, and then in turn, of course, protecting natural areas, uh, areas of natural beauty. So I want to start really talking about a tribe in Tanzania called the Hazabe tribe. Before I go any further, those two words are pronounced absolutely fine. From now on, pronunciation may go out the window. Feel free to correct me, but just don't oh, no, shout at me. <laughs> <laughs> you are filling in for Aaron, yeah. so feel free, feel free to butcher words for him. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> as, he would, as he would anyway. So the, um, the Hadzabi tribe, you find them in the Yudhia Valley in, in Tanzania. Now, they are a tribe that have been there for a long, long time. Um, some, some anthropologists believe they've been there for about 40,000 years. And they're the closest living analogue to the way humans would have been um, back in the day when we crawled out of the sea and then eventually became humans. That would have been the close one. The way they live now is the closest to what we would have done back, back then. So for one reason, I personally believe it's just worth protecting these people anyway, because they're part of our history. But more importantly, the area they live in, they live in a absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous area. It is inside the Rift Valley, which is obviously a huge, huge area. But as many people will know, again, it's an area that's known for its outstanding natural beauty. Mm-hmm. The area of land they live in covers about 20,000 hectares. So it's a, quite a large bit of land when I say it like that. But as we 
progress, you'll probably quickly realize actually that's not much land at all. So since the 1960s, the land that the, the Hazabe had been living on, da -da -da -da, there was about uh, 1,000 to 1,500 of them back then. And that number has slowly crept up a little bit over time. But um, from the 1960s to just before 2010, the area of land that the Hazabe had access to had reduced by 90%. Uh, that's due to deforestation and also due to neighboring tribes that have switched to a more pastoralist lifestyle. For those of you that don't know, that's mm. a tribe that focuses heavily on farming cattle for milk. Um, so the, the Tuga tribe and the uh, Sukuma tribe, they are nomadic tribes. So they roam around from land to land, build farms, raise cattle. And as I'm sure you guys know, when you raise cattle on any land, the effect on said land is huge. Um, it takes all sorts of nutrients out of the land, adds chemicals to the land that shouldn't be there as well, depending on how they're farming anyway. But either way, farming, for the most part, normally is quite unsustainable because of the way it's rushed, you might say. So these tribes are moving in, they're taking up the area. As a result, the Hazabe are now left with very little land. And they were facing losing their culture, but again, also the acacia woodland that they live in. Uh, if anyone's ever seen acacia woodland, you'll know for yourselves. Again, beautiful, beautiful woodland. It really, really is. And home to all sorts of different wildlife uh, in Africa. Uh, megafauna as well. Uh, you do get a lot of elephants in the area where they live. And we do get lions and leopards as well. So these are all animals that a lot of people care about. Um, as you guys will know and I know, living in zoos, they're animals that catch people's attention. But as Gareth will, of course, vouch for, when it comes to protecting woodland, we are also protecting our smaller creatures that we forget about a lot as well. Oh, there yeah. are many, many bugs and insects mm. living in these in these uh, woodland areas. And some could argue that they play a way more important role uh, in the ecosystem than some of the larger animals. They certainly do. So question is, what was actually being done to help the Hazabe? So back in 2010, uh, a company called let's see what they're quickly called because i've forgotten oh, very simple carbon tanzania they did a study in tanzania and they worked out that beneath the ground there are hundreds of tons of carbon per square foot lots and lots and lots of it there and because of the way the baobab trees and acacia trees grow uh this graphite it's just being pushed up to the surface so you can just walk over and you can pick it up now me and drew had a very interesting discussion the other day about this and drew asked a very good question does that have a negative impact on the environment taking the carbon? The answer is it would if it was mined using traditional methods that, well, I say traditional, the methods that we use today. So that would be going into the woodland, tearing out the trees, exact, intensive method, uh, methods, exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah. So yeah. that's not ideal because, of course, that's going to be destroying the woodland. So this company basically explained to the Hazabe people that the carbon's worth lots and lots of money. Um, they've found buyers across the globe that are willing to buy this carbon and process it into many, many different things. Now, the reason this is important uh, at this stage is a lot of people might be going, well, why is carbon important? Like, I don't use it. You guys will know this. Carbon is very, very important. Um, we use it every single day. It's in our devices. It's in all sorts of different things. And the great thing about this natural carbon is it can be processed so many different ways. And it's cheap and nice and pure as well. So take, for example, if you're a builder you will use carbon on a daily basis. So on your drill tips, you have diamond heads. Those are literally grown diamonds from this exact carbon. They grow it in labs uh, in a very, very controlled environment. Uh, and that's mm. what goes in the end of tools. So ultimately, it's an important material. People want to buy it. So the profit is there for it. Now, the reason a lot of people haven't been buying this bio 
uh, carbon, shall we call it, is because it's slow. It requires people to walk around, pick it up off the ground, and it's only available when the ground wants to present it to you, really, only certain times of the year, apparently. So a lot of companies are against that because, again, like I said, people rush in this day and age. People can't be bothered to wait. But I'm very pleased to say that thanks to the UN Red uh, Movement or initiative, which you guys may or may not have heard of, which is purely and simply United Nations collaborative program on reducing emissions. They've caught on to what this company are doing and they love it because if the, uh, the reason this car so much carbon is forming in this area is because the acacia trees are taking carbon out of the air and it's being brought down into the ground uh, and it's, it's developing there a lot quicker than in some other areas. Now, that's really important. Capturing carbon is a very, very powerful tool to us right now with the way the globe is going. I know for a fact that every time I look at the news now, there's a story on there about climate change. And part of me goes, well, that's good news. I'm glad people are taking notice. But obviously, the other part of me is saying, well, the problem is obviously growing if people are taking it's coming. notice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so carbon capturing is big business. People are developing technologies to try and do it again to reduce these emissions um and it would seem that one of the most effective ways of doing it is letting nature just do its job letting trees suck uh, suck carbon out of the air and process it the way they need to and for that carbon to stay captured it either needs to be harvested in its raw carbon form so when it comes out the ground or the trees need to stay standing so again you guys know about this too so when you cut down trees the trees spend you know their entire life harvesting carbon out the air when you cut them down all of that carbon is going to get released back into our atmosphere eventually. So cutting down rainforests, not only does it take away homes from millions of animals, it's, uh, it's killing us another way as well by seeping out more carbon into the atmosphere, which we just don't need. So I'll quickly I'll start coming to an end here if you guys want to ask me anything. So like I say, the whole movement started in 2010 with this company, um, Carbon Tanzania, picking up on this whole thing. They've been a great great benefit to the Hazabe people and saving their culture and saving a lot of the animals in that area because they've given the Hazabe a reason to protect that woodland. They already did anyway. They're a very, they're very, a very natural tribe. They live very, very sustainably. They weren't about cutting down trees and everything anyway, very much living off the land. But now, because they make money off of that forest, they've actually been given legal rights to the land, which also happened in 2010, which when I learned that blew my mind. I find it crazy that someone can live somewhere <clears throat> for 40,000 years <laughs> and uh, only just get licensing for their land. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, as a result, it means that they can make their own laws. It means they can kick people off their land whenever they want. If anyone goes there to hunt animals, cut down trees, they are breaking, they are breaking the law and they can be prosecuted. So all in all, it's good news. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this main this subject, really, as I said at the beginning, is because conservation is changing. As time goes on, we're going from, you know, fighting poachers, saying all people are evil, and we're moving very much more in this direction, working alongside people, trying to give people a good reason to maintain what's around them and use it to profit, which I don't like saying, you know, profits shouldn't be the top of anyone's list, really. But unfortunately, the Hazabe people have had to find a way to make profit to buy their land um, and also to buy supplies and all sorts of different things. But at least they can afford it now. They're not just being muscled out just because they don't make money. Um, yeah. And there are projects like this that are, going to go, that are going on all over the globe. I remember years ago, there was a project in Madagascar that worked with um, some people in a small village. And it was about harvesting silk from silkworms. And a great thing about the silkworm is it's a very sensitive animal and it needed the rainforest. Um, and unfortunately, people were obviously, again, cutting down swaths, swaths for farming and hunting lemurs and the like for bushmeat. Ultimately, uh, making that ecosystem start to collapse. But 
when they started to look after the silkworm and harvest that silk and sell it, it meant that the rainforest was protected. And yeah, programs like this, they really capture my imagination when it comes to conservation. It gives me hope as well, because this just this project that I've told you about is working. Um, ground studies are being done on a regular basis. And the last little point I will say, if anyone was wondering about the, uh, the Datuga and the uh, Sakuma tribes, uh, some people might look at them as the enemy because they moved in and started farming. But at the end of the day, they're nomadic. They were just trying to survive. So a nice thing, again, about all of this is they're not working against those tribes. They're trying to work with them. So through ground studies, they're finding areas of land that are more suited for farming rather than just chopping down woodland. All in all, good things on the horizon. There is good news out there. I like saying that to people. Uh, it's Ooh. quite easy to get down in the dumps when it comes to conservation, but there is good news out there. And that's yeah. my little story for you. I hope you learned something. That's very oh, thank good. You. <laughs> I, I'm blown away by the fact of just being able to walk through a woodland and, and come across, well, lumps yeah. of carbon. Like raw but, carbon, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite cool. I suppose it, it's got to come to the surface at some point in some <laughs> places because of just yeah. geological movements. And I suppose the Rift Valley in itself is... Uh, I, was, I was just about to say, yeah, because the Rift is basically... Well, it's, it's bringing Africa apart, isn't it? So it's going to... Yeah. Stuff is going to come up from... Uh, but it is um, um, underneath. It's just raw, yeah. raw graphite. That's all it is. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Are the Hasabi tribe... Are they hunter-gatherers or are they are they agricultural? Do you know? Oh, they're hunter-gatherers. Yeah, purely. Oh, they're hunter-gatherers, okay. Oh. Which is, again, even though it's their lifestyle, and I'm not you know saying they should change that, but that that fact in itself has made their life a lot more difficult because they haven't progressed yeah. to cattle farming and they don't want to, but because again, they're, they're running out of space to find food basically. Yeah. There we are. Yeah. Those are they? If anyone hasn't learned about them, I strongly recommend going and learn about them. There's amazing videos on YouTube about them. However, if you do go and watch any of those videos, I will highlight, as Drew just said, they're a hunter gatherer tribe. Some of the videos yeah. about them are incredibly graphic, incredibly graphic. However, if you have a strong stomach, they're fascinating. They're worth watching. They really are. Well, I've got a relatively small article. There's been um, two interesting paleontological finds in Australia this week. So I thought I'd uh, bring them both to light. One that I'll just touch on is uh, the largest trilobite ever in Australia has been found. Uh, and it's been given the name of Titan Eye, which is a, well, you know, you're going to call it after something large. It's, it's going to be a Titan. Um, it's a new species, sorry. A new species as well, yeah. New species, um, right. Should have called it David. <laughs> yep. David the trilobite. <laughs> just, just David. <laughs> the the problem with a lot of the um the sort of fossils uh, in Australia is, well, for years and years, no one's really bothered looking because the uh, the sort of focus on fossil hunting and paleontology has always been Europe, North America, and to a lesser extent Asia. So places like uh, Australia, Africa, Antarctica, South America, they're now all going through like this sort of resurgence of people actually bothering to look in them. We we're getting all these new dinosaurs and new fossils from all these different places. So areas that were once thought to be completely and utterly barren of fossils are actually turning out to be full of them. So it's just because no one bothered to look. But that's not mm. the one that I'm focusing on uh, as much. It's from Australian Geographic. Now, as much as I like Australian Geographic, and we quite often share them on, on the Facebook page and on, on the Twitter, I don't like the headline they've given this. The closest thing to a real-life flying dragon. I'm so sick of people comparing pterosaurs to dragons. Ridiculous. Um, so, yes, this is a pterosaur. Uh, it's a new species of pterosaur. It's called... I'm going to definitely butcher this. Thapa Nuanga... Thapa... Thapa... Thap... Una... I can edit. Don't worry. 
You... <laughs> no, don't, don't leave it. <laughs> oh, all right, I leave it. Fat you nagaka sure I. So yeah, I'm going to try and say that as little as possible because I'm going to definitely butcher it. Um, Just call it the, the giant dragon. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because yeah. That's probably why they say dragon in the article. What else is calling it? Dave the dragon. It's Dave the dragon. Oh, it's um, Australia, isn't it? It's Davo. <laughs> Davo the dragon um, yeah. is a new species of pterosaur from Queensland, um, which uh, if you don't know Australia, it's basically the state on the top eastern side of Australia. Um, it's the tropical bit where all the uh, the really sunny beaches and, and all that is, uh, and the rainforest bits as well. But it also sits on the edge of what was known as the Eramanga Sea, which is a prehistoric sea that has long since dried up. Uh, effectively, if you drew a big circle in the middle of Australia, that's where the Eramanga Sea is, or used to be. So during the Cretaceous and the Jurassic, uh, this sea was basically sitting there and, you know, lots of things died in it and lots of things were fossilised in it. I've seen fossils of uh, plesiosaurs that have been opalized, uh, which is a very rare thing that happens in uh, in South Australia in places like Coober There's an entire skeleton of a plesiosaur that has been op- uh, opalized, which is a stunning thing to see. Mm. Um, but this one has not been opalized at all. This one died in a different part of the uh, the Aramanga Sea. Uh, essentially, it's a has a seven meter wingspan, so it's a fairly decent sized pterosaur. So this pterosaur belongs to the Anhangurians, which is a group of t- a group of pterosaurs, which are best sort of described if you've ever seen Walking with Dinosaurs, the episode that has Ornithochirus in it. Uh, I'm fairly certain Ornithochirus, and I'm probably very wrong on this, uh, is. Uh, an ang an an hang urian, which is that group of pterosaurs that have sort of a if you drew a rugby ball on the end of a, a beak, they've got that sort of you know half oval shape on either side of their beak, uh yep. sort of display structure. It had a mouthful of up to forty teeth, which would have been perfect for catching fish. The most likely thought as to how these guys feed is skim feeding and then snatching fish up uh, as they uh, they fly past. And being found around that part of the Aramanga Sea, you know, pretty much fits. The interesting thing about this is it's the only uh, one of three species of pterosaur that have ever been found in Australia. And all of them have come from West Queensland, which is the edge of the Aramanga Sea. So that's um, quite an interesting sort of, you know, like amount of pterosaurs. If you think about the amount of species of, uh, of pterosaurs that have been found in other parts of the world, say, well, uh, the UK, there's this, you know, we're we're into sort of twenties and thirties of different species of, of pterosaur. Then if you go to North America, there's even more. But uh, it shows that the numbers are at least, you know, going up uh, when it comes to things like that. So the name itself is broken down into two bits. So I'm going to butcher the name again, but it's for a reason. The meaning of the uh, the name uh, is uh, in two different parts. So the first part, and I'm going to butcher this again. That you nagak. And I apologise to all our, all our Aboriginal listeners. I think you should apologise to just anyone who speaks. Anyone who, yeah, who's uh, aware of the English language. Um, it comes from the uh, Wanamara uh, nation of First Peoples from Australia. Um, essentially, it is to do with spear throwing, as far as I can tell. 
and the second part of the name, Shore Eye, uh, is after its discoverer. So the full name means Shaw's Spear Thrower, uh, which is quite a cool name. Um, so yeah, that's uh, pretty much. Oh, it's it's on display at Chronosaurus Corner, which is a museum uh, in Queensland. Because well, that's another one that they found in that area is, is Chronosaurus, which is probably one of the more famous large pliosaurs from that part of the world. So okay. yeah, there's uh, there's my news article this week um, for just, us. Just quickly, why is it called a spear thrower? Have these guys developed that t- sort of technology? I'm glad you asked that. I thought I missed something. <laughs> no, yeah. that's part of the um, part of the Wanamara nation's language. It evidently means uh, spear or spear throwing, uh, and okay. then combined with uh, the name Shaw, the the guy who discovered it. That's where you get the um, cool name. Shaw's spear thrower. Yeah. yeah. So they didn't breathe fire. They didn't breathe fire, and they didn't all have Sean Connery's voice. They didn't know. Well, actually, we don't know that. Not dragons. No, we, we don't know that. Know. That is true. We don't know. <laughs> we would never know that. I mean, well, you could have been walking through, you know, Cretaceous Australia, and all you'd hear is, oh, is okay. Sean Connery's voice. Yeah. But, what would he uh, say? <laughs> I mean, I'm waiting. Say? I'm waiting for one of you to do a Sean Connery. I was impression. hoping you were going to do one when you started. <laughs> when you started speaking, then I was like, here we go. Here comes a Sean Connery uh, impression. No. All right. Hello. Hello. That's perfect. <laughs> That's what you say with you, and then um, and then throw a proverbial spear at them. Oh, yeah, yeah. money, penny. <laughs> throw a spear. Perfect. That's the last thing you never hear. It's yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's move on from our um, spear throwing pterosaur dragon things uh, to uh, our creature feature. Um, so yeah, let's do that. It's the creature feature. So, this week's creature feature, uh, Drew is going to be telling us all about beavers. Take it away, Drew. Yes. So, I've personally been fascinated by beavers and their uh, ecological impact for quite a long time. Have you guys ever seen a beaver? Not in the flesh. Only in a zoo? Yeah. Do you remember what zoo? Adelaide Zoo. Oh, okay. Oh, Oh, is that... There you go. There's Gareth's There we go. I didn't even mention it in the news article, which was all about Australia, but I'd never been to England. So, but oh, um, no, there's actually weirdly you, you say that is um, that was the one animal that was there that always came out like after dark, and no member of the public usually saw it. It was round by the bears, I remember. But w- when I did work experience there, I was there late enough, and I actually got to see it. But spent ages waiting to see this damn thing. But that's the only beaver I've ever seen. Yeah. I've also seen them in captivity as well, but I can't actually remember which zoo, uh, which zoo I had to, but I haven't seen them in the wild. But I would like to. I'd be very, very keen on doing that because uh, they're here now. They're yeah. here in the UK, and there is going to be a little bit on beaver reintroductions uh, in this creature feature because, I mean, they're all over the news and social media at the moment, and it's really good news, and it is a long time coming. But as pretty much always, we'll sort of start with the bare basics. So what is a beaver? Well... They're rodents, uh, but unlike most rodents, they're big. Uh, they're the second largest in the world after capybara. And also, unlike most rodents, they don't constantly shoot out babies. Uh, they only have one litter per year, and they give birth to between one to eight young, so about two to four being being average. In appearance, beavers are stout and covered in thick brown fur. The roots of the name beaver is actually, it comes from like really ancient Indo-European. It just means brown. 
So basically, oh. that's that's the first thing we called them. It was a, oh, there's a brown. There's a brown. There's a brown. Disappointed. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, we just said things for what they were, weren't they? Yeah, it's fine. It's a yeah. brown. It's a simpler time back then. It was, it was simpler, simpler time. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, they have a flat, scaly tail, which has multiple functions. It gives support when the animal is standing upright, so when it's chewing down a tree. Uh, it also acts as rudder, so helping to steer when it's swimming. Uh, it also stores fat, and it has a counter-current blood vessel system, which allows the beaver to lose heat in warm temperatures and retain it in cold temperatures, uh, uh-huh. all, stored, all stored in the tail. Uh, like all rodents, they are characterized by a continuously growing in sizes. Uh, they've got an upper pair and a lower pair. Because of this, they have to gnaw or chew to keep their incisors from growing out of control. Um, and the beavers incisors are probably one of the most defining features. Uh, they're orange in color because of the presence of iron compounds that reinforce the thick outer enamel. Why do we call them brown then? Because beavers are brown. But you just said they're orange. So what are we referring to there? Oh, the teeth. Oh, just the teeth. Okay, cool. That makes a lot Sorry, more sense. The, Excellent. The, the teeth. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what like, why are we calling the brown? Okay. Thank you. Because that's just a uh, little hiccup for me there. Karen. Uh, that's all right. That's all right. But yes, with that thick, the rudder-like tail and webbed, uh, webbed feet, uh, they're highly specialized for aquatic environments, spending a lot of their time in water. Uh, comparatively, they're, they're quite ungainly on land. And of course, they create dams from felled trees, which they divide into smaller branches and drag them in place to build the dam. Uh, and also their lodges, uh, which are, are built with sticks and branches too, and they're held together with mud. So... If you didn't know what a beaver was before that, that's a beaver. That thing about their tail, I had no idea about. That was fascinating. Well, you're very welcome. There's, there's, there's more coming. Um, I'm excited. There are two species of beaver living today. Uh, there used to be many more, some of which, like Castoroides, uh, at two meters long, were very large. I and mean, beavers are large themselves, but this was a particularly big beaver. The two beavers we have today are the Eurasian, or European beaver, and the North American beaver. And they are superficially very similar. Uh, Eurasian beavers are a little lighter in colour, a bit shorter, have a thinner tail and a longer snout. Uh, despite their superficial similarities, they, they cannot hybridise. So I guess you could say they are more genetically dissimilar to each other than a lion is to a tiger, as they can hybridise, although that doesn't mean you should. No. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. But yeah, they look very similar, but no hybrids. Hmm. So why are beavers so special, you both asked? Why are they? Why are they so special? Why are they so special? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, (laughs) Not a false question at all. Uh, (laughs) The simple answer is that beavers are a keystone species. And bizarrely, I think that might be the first time we've actually used that term on this podcast. Uh, It might be, actually, yeah. It might, yeah. So would either of you, or both of you, like to give a definition of a keystone species? I am but a humble chef. I do not know this word. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, considering that I would say all three of us have talked multiple times to multiple members of the public what? about keystone species, I'd, yeah. I'd like to think that uh, we we know it, but I'm going to probably totally butcher it. <laughs> uh, no, you won't. You won't. Go on. Don't go worry. on. Go for it. Go for it. You feeling brave? Uh, it's a species that um, essentially is the, well, the keystone, the bit in the middle that holds an archway together, the archway oh. being the environment. Um, it is the sort of the linchpin of that environment. Without it, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. Would you like to add anything to that, Shane, or are you happy with that? 
Actually, any tiny little thing, uh, yep. not really adding, just a little side note. Uh, often, yep. I've encountered people get keystone species and indicator species confused. They are different ah, things, yeah. and we should all remember mm -hmm. that. Indicator species tell us how healthy an ecosystem is, but Gareth explained yep. keystone species perfectly there. Yes. Yeah, that, yes, that is a good distinction, actually. Yeah, so basically this, the definition I wrote down is pretty much what you said, Gareth, really. There is one tiny addition, though, and that is that there is only one keystone in an archway. So a keystone species is a species that has a disproportionately large effect on its natural environment relative to its abundance. And yes, without it, that ecosystem would collapse. There are very few of them normally in, in, in an ecosystem, but without them, it will collapse. So they're pretty important. Uh, beavers are a keystone species because their natural behaviors create habitats. Um, firstly, by coppicing trees like willow, hazel, rowan, and aspen, which is where trees are cut close to the base and then the regrowth provides homes for a, var a variety of insects and birds. Uh, it also allows other plants to grow too due to the reduced competition, so increasing the diversity of uh, plant life. And secondly, by damming rivers and streams to create ponds and wetlands. And not discussing the good that that does would be quite the disservice. So we're going to be discussing that quite a lot. Damn. Um, so here's a list of things as to why beaver created ponds and wetlands are great. Well, first and foremost, wetlands and ponds are havens for wildlife and plant life. Water, of course, being the source of all life. Beaver created wetlands and ponds increased biodiversity. Uh, as trees are removed and the land is flooded, aquatic plant species move in. And the riparian habitat, so that's wetlands areas near water, expands, allowing for even more plant diversity. Uh, these plants offer fo uh, forage and shelter for a myriad of animals. Uh, aquatic animals, of course, also benefit from well, uh, more water, uh, as well as the plant life. So you'll see an increase in vertebrate numbers and diversity alongside fish, amphibians, waterfowl, and small mammals like water vole. Um, in turn, predators will increase all along the food chain. So feeding on the animals I just listed. So you'll get otters, kingfishers, herons, egrets, grass snakes, etc., etc. The UK has the highest biodiversity loss out of all the countries in the G7. So, you know, bringing beavers back is going to help that recovery, certainly. Mm. Yeah. Next, beaver dams slow down the water flow, which reduces soil erosion and it increases sediment retention and filters the water going through. So this nutrient-rich sediment provides food for the creatures uh, that live at the bottom of the pond. And it also absorbs and, and filters pollutants such as heavy metals, pesticides and fertilizers. Uh, this improves the quality of water downstream that potentially we humans will use alongside other species too. So they clean our water. Next, these wetlands store water during droughts. Uh, the ground is essentially a sponge, and beavers basically keep the sponge wet. Uh, this will lessen the effects of a drought uh, because the water is being stored on the surface. So ecosystems are less vulnerable during a dry period. Uh, less of an issue in the UK because it rains a third of the year here, but if the temperature keeps increasing, we're going to need all the help we can get. Next, in the great game of elemental rock, paper, scissors, water beats fire. Uh, wetlands are firebreakers and thus can not only be a safe haven for an environment scorched by wildfire, but can stop the fire in its tracks, preventing further damage. Um, I'm obviously not saying fire, fires aren't a natural process and, we are, uh, and are always bad, but we are getting more of them, and fewer wetlands is going to be a problem there. Um, and finally, beaver dams prevent flooding, or rather, they flood a particular area, which then prevents flooding or mass flooding elsewhere. So if you are from the UK and listening to this, and you were thinking the previous two points, droughts and fires, are not so much of a problem for us. This one is, because we have a big problem with flooding. Mm. Uh, most of Europe does. 
Yeah. Um, and that concrete under your feet isn't going to do shit. Quite the opposite, actually. So, as I said, beaver dams slow the flow of water, which delays or reduces the risk of flooding further downstream. However, if we shoot all of the beavers and they can't maintain that dam anymore, which is basically what happened a few centuries ago, you've got a lot of water constantly coming your way. So if you were there wondering, what have the beavers ever done for us? <laughs> That's what beaver behavior does to benefit uh, the environment. And that does benefit us. Weather effects reduction aside, increasing biodiversity is only a positive. It's our ecological life support. Healthy ecosystems clean our water, purify our air, maintain our soil, uh, regulate the climate, recycle nutrients, and provide us with food. And biodiversity indicates the health of an ecosystem. A wider variety of species will cope better with threats than the limited number of them in a large population. So reintroducing beavers into an environment they're native to, that's quite important because they have been, oh, sorry, not, they've, uh, they've been introduced into areas where they're not native to and they've caused problems. But reintroducing them into, into environments they're native to so that they can engineer that ecosystem uh, and increase biodiversity can only be a good thing. So they've been hunted for a long time uh, for fur, meat, and their castorium. The castorium, by the way, is a yellow, a ye like a yellowish liquid that secretes from what are called castor sacs. They're like glands, but they aren't glands. They mix them with urine to mark their territory, and we use them in food additive, or at least we did. I think we do I in some was, places. I, I, I knew there was something along those lines. I couldn't remember. Yeah. And we use them as perfumes as well. So on that, mm. do you know what uh, what the substance might smell like? I think I do. Whale's vomit. Whale vomit. <laughs> yeah. Is it vanilla? It is vanilla. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, I like... remembered from a long time ago there was something to do with beavers and vanilla. And, yeah. And... Uh, I just couldn't fully get my finger on it, and you've just reminded me, Drew. Well, that was the problem. Some of them got their finger on it, and they smelled it. <laughs> and they went, oh, Ooh, that's oh, oh that's Ooh, that smells nice. Oh, I love that. I'll wipe that on, uh, on the wife. Similar to the first Beautiful. person that looked at a cloud Human... cow's udder and went, I bet that produces some tasty <laughs> liquid. Mm, get my mouth around that. <laughs> Humans are very odd when it comes to Here this. Here we are. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that whale's just thrown up over there. I bet I could rub that on myself and it will smell nice. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, ever resourceful. Uh, but yes, you, you are correct. It, it smells like a, a musky vanilla. Mm, um, musky vanilla. Mm. Why isn't that an ice cream flavour? Musky vanilla. I, I will get down to Hawking's and, and, uh, <laughs> and ask them. Pitch that idea. Yeah, well, that means uh, uh, I swear for plugging Hawkins, they should give you a free tub of ice cream now. Oh, I think so. Free tub of vanilla. Tugging, uh, Hawkins is the best ice cream on the planet for anyone oh, who is. doesn't live near us. Yeah, <laughs> uh, do do come and enjoy it. Oh, it's, it's I would invite good. people to come and enjoy it, but then there's less left for me. We're not so we're not turning we're, we're not going them. into the uh, the Devonshire thing again. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't discussed <laughs> we haven't discussed uh, cream teas yet. <laughs> we're not. Let's There's not, not a discussion to be held. No, there isn't. That's why we haven't discussed it. The rest of the world has no idea what we're talking about. No, I'm sorry. It's fine. It's about fine. Our yeah. Well, yeah. We just it's picked up listeners in Croatia this week. Oh. Yeah, oh. I know. I don't think they have that issue of Devon versus Cornwall for cream teas in well, Croatia. Your listeners should make some scones or scones at home whatever they'd like to call them and then they should uh report yes. back to you next week and then we can get the, them involved in the argument 
Fair enough. Yeah. People yeah. from Croatia, please uh, message in. Though. Would you put jam or cream on your? Which scones. one would you? Which, which yeah? Which one would you put on first on your on your scone? And, uh, and if it's there. if it's not cream, why? <laughs> but anyway, anyway, back, back quickly to uh, back to, to beaver conservation. Dinner. So we've seen localized and sometimes national extinctions of beavers. Uh, the UK, unsurprisingly, being the an example of the latter. But as we learn more to greater our understanding of the world around us, we can correct these mistakes of the past. I am happy to say that Eurasian beavers are on the increase. Uh, in the late 19th century in France, there were only about 100 of them. Well, now there are over 14,000. Germany, by the late 19th century, had 200. Now they have 25,000 or more. They were eradicated from Switzerland, Denmark, Sweden, uh, Netherlands, Romania, Italy, and Serbia. But they've since been reintroduced through the years from populations in France, Germany, Norway, and Russia. You got a question? I was going to say, I'm very impressed that the animal survey records go that far back. That's amazing. Yeah. Whenever I looked at stuff like that, they didn't often go that far back. That's um, a yeah. good find. Good find. Well done, Germany. Yes. And what did you say? Was everyone sorry? Did you say France? Uh, and or... France as well. Well, yeah. and so all of those countries that I listed too, they have now got beavers. They eradicated them, which is bad. Yeah. So not not well done for that. But they yeah. have they have since been reintroduced. I think deliberately too, not not just from them wandering in from neighbouring countries. An air of their uh, ways. Yeah. And as for the UK, because obviously we're an island, as we we like to shout about, it is good news overall. I'm happy to say. So beavers have been extinct here since the 16th century. So they were very they were last referenced in 1526, uh, and that's a long ass time ago. Mm. But they have been reintroduced now. In 2001, they were reintroduced into Scotland uh, through the work of the Scot- uh, Scottish Wildlife Trust and RZSS. So that's the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, who we have mentioned numerous times in this podcast, and that's just another good thing that they have done. So well done. Uh, RZSS and also Scottish Wildlife Trust and in 2008 they popped up down here in Devon on the unaptly named River Otter mm-hmm. um, I say popped up because their origin is unknown mystery it's, it's believed some absolute legend just let some loose It's, I mean it's quite a complicated story and I, I was sort of finding myself a bit cut for time uh, here so I'll, I'll kind of summarise it as best as I can Basically, some local landowners, anglers and the government were unhappy about the beavers that just appeared. Um, and they fought, not physically, as far as I know, uh, with yeah, with the beavers and the campaigners, environmentalists and amazing many local people also who um, most local people supported uh, the fact that they had beavers nearby. It was decided uh, that the beavers should be allowed to say if they were clear of disease. This took a lot of campaigning to get to this stage. but they were clear. Hooray. So since then, uh, more have been introduced officially uh, down on the River Otter, um, and we're seeing further reintroductions across the country too. Uh, again, like I said at the beginning of this, it keeps popping up on social media and, and the news with beavers just basically being stuck or looking into reintroducing across all across the country, which is amazing news because uh, of all that good stuff that, uh, that they do that I, that I just mm. told you. The ones um, on the, um, the River Otter apparently... Mm. You go to the right place, they quite happily sit out in plain view. Um, I was talking to, to someone who saw them just a couple of weeks ago, and he said, as long as you sit there quietly and go to the, this this right place, they just essentially sit there the entire time. 
which is mm. fantastic because it means that people can go and see them and be enthused by seeing by by being able to see them so easily for such a mm. secretive animal as well. Yeah, I I, I learned a tip on a, a, a documentary that I watched called Zombievers. <laughs> and um uh, a documentary yeah it was a, it was a documentary um okay. <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure it was uh that if you uh if you if you get bitten by a beaver and you do turn into a, a zombiever if yeah. you slap your tail on the floor repeatedly you will mm-hmm. uh, attract other beavers so that's okay. another way you can of course you can see beavers out there is uh slap slapping your tail, your tail slap your tail on the floor um if i bring like a scaly thing with me and hit that on the floor I might be able to yeah. just be the Pied Piper of Beavers. Yeah, you could you could bypass the the zombie stage. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, I um, might be in a human. But uh, on that note, that's I think mean, that's pretty much the end of the Beaver <laughs> creature feature. But yeah, I mean let's I mean let's just hope that things continue to improve for them. I mean, I they're, just... they're doing such a good job. Yes. <laughs> just comment on. Yeah. All fascinating stuff. I really enjoyed listening to that. I learned not so. Oh. I'm sure lots of yeah. people did. But I can't help but thinking about the people that were just writing in complaining about a fucking beaver moving into their neighbourhood. <laughs> oh, no, no, I said, what I are said these local... people doing with their time? <laughs> well, <laughs> local I mean... people were supporting it. It was uh, it was sort of um, some local landowners yeah. that were upset. Just... And uh, anglers? Like wars or anything, weren't they? There's a, lot, there's a lot of problem with, with anglers having issues with, uh, with, with, with beavers. Essentially, at one point, there was some fish farmers up in Scotland that were saying the beavers were going to come and eat the, the salmon that they were farming. Yes. <laughs> Which they don't do. They eat vegetation. Yes. I mean, if you it look was... at them close enough, they do look like grizzly bears. Maybe <laughs> yeah. that's what, maybe that's where the confusion bear. lay. <laughs> maybe. Yes, it is important to stress that beavers do not eat fish. Essentially, I think it's a case of if there's, if there's someone who wants to complain about something because they think it might possibly impact their business, they're going to mm. complain. Yeah. Well, that's, well that's it will it will impact it. it. Yeah. If you are an, if you're an angler, way. having beavers will impact your angling because mm. there will be more fish for you. Yeah. So, oh, we don't want that. Maybe they're just like, no, we don't want that. Maybe they're they're just hardcore anglers are like, now nah, maybe you want it on hard mode. Yeah, you want it so basically <laughs> the planet's almost a desert, and there's still wanna... a couple of fish about. <laughs> I don't want to just come out here week after week and sit in the rain by a river to catch fish i sit here to just sit here yeah yeah anyway yeah, i don't want to come i don't want to come along dip the bait in and the fish comes on immediately because then i've got just got to go home that's yeah. it done then that's all my joy out of it yeah <laughs> only bought one worm with me yeah. <laughs> i've got i've got a random one for you guys have you ever heard of the term beaver fever uh i think i've heard the term yeah i've heard, really I've heard the means. term do you I know what it refers what it to no beavers Not- not Chomping beaver on. fever, but beaver fever. Well, beaver fever is a very much a real thing. It comes from Canada. It is giardia, basically. It's just oh. a, another word for, for essentially a uh, single-celled parasite that lives in, in water. Beavers can carry it. And essentially, the whole thing appears to have come from an incident where hikers uh, in Banff National Park decided to drink some water that came off a, uh, a stream that came off a beaver dam and they all got really, really sick. I mean, and uh, the name Beaver Fever stuck. So uh, that's uh, essentially... It's not advisable anywhere! I mean, I did sort of explain that it, it uh, actually irrigates and filters the water. 
but yeah, if not, the beavers, not if the beavers enough. <laughs> no, no, not it won't get rid of that. Well, there we go. There's there's my random beaver fact for you. Oh. Um, uh, interestingly, the that uh, that Indo-European word for where beaver comes from, I think, was almost is quite similar to beaver. I think that's how we used to pronounce it a long ah, time ago. So it should just be Justin Brown then. It could be just yeah, could be. <laughs> Weirdly, it makes him sound more of a classy singer. I don't know, but anyway. Anyway. <laughs> right. Anyway, so we'll uh, we'll move on from our lovely aquatic brown mammals to uh, well, some interesting pop culture, shall we say? So mm. uh, let's do that. Oh look, it's culture corner. Right. So this week's pop culture corner is is well, it's pop culture, um, and it's it's more about the fact that pop culture itself can influence the way that people learn essentially about different topics i've taken three of the worst documentaries and i say that with the biggest inverted commas ever documentaries from animal planet and the discovery channel which are essentially one in the same the discovery channel is the parent company of, of the two and these are three of the worst which actually fooled people into believing that some of this stuff was real and essentially sold people on the idea of things that were a load of rubbish and didn't educate people in the slightest bit. <laughs> and I've, I've watched all three of these documentaries uh, fairly recently just to, to go back over them. I don't know whether you guys have seen them. Um, I think I sent you the link, Drew, to one of them. Mm-hmm. Did you manage to watch it? I'll be honest, Gareth, I had better things to do than watch... A rubbish documentary. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. I appreciate your sacrifice. I really appreciate is, your sacrifice. Yeah, nice one. Yeah, so I, do I. This, oh, you, so you guys don't. You gave, you gave it pretext. Yeah, you gave it pretext <laughs> yeah. that oh, yeah. what, this is awful. Watch it. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> this is awful. Watch it, please. Anyway, so what are these three documentaries? These are three documentaries that have come out. The, they're not essentially related to each other in any way, shape, or form, but they seem to follow a similar, or two of them follow a very similar format. And that is very much leaving out, this is a fake documentary, or as the Wikipedia description for it goes is, docu-fiction. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as just fiction. Yeah, It's, it's not documentary fiction. Uh, anyway. Alternative truth. Alternative truth, yeah. Basically, yeah. this is like, yeah, okay. So essentially, the two of these are very similar to each other in that they leave out what should be, this is made up, this is got nothing to do with real life uh, and a lot of people actually fell for it and that's the sad thing is people believe what they see on tv it doesn't take much to, to fool some people not saying that everyone but um if you were watching this as a young impressionable child it could change your view of of science and and nature and things and and that has a detrimental effect on future outcomes of of people wanting to learn science especially if they think they've been taken for a ride and have been tricked Mm. you you're going to be less likely to want to actually uh, learn anything about science especially Mm. natural sciences or anything like that which you know it's a really important thing like say getting people into conservation getting people into protecting nature we want people to have the facts but at the same time we don't want people being turned off uh, from nature and, and conservation because they see something on TV that is absolutely false. So anyway, these three documentaries. First one is Mermaids, The Body Found. This was a 
2011 documentary. This is the one that uh, I, I've sent Drew. It was about it an hour long, wasn't it? It was about an hour long. Wow. Yeah. It, it, it is actually entertaining in some aspects. If you know full well that it is not real, because yeah. you should really know that it's not real. Essentially, the, the documentary starts with sort of blurry photography of someone on a beach finding all these stranded dead whales and there being a dead mermaid body. These kids finding it and recording it. You know, this is all found footage sort of thing. And then they're having interviews with government scientists <laughs> saying that, no, we didn't have bodies of mermaids recovered and all this sort of thing. And it just, it gets ridiculous. And then they intersplice this entire documentary with the aquatic ape theory. Now, I don't know whether you two are familiar with the aquatic ape theory. I mean, you've argued about it before, yeah. Yeah, uh, essentially <laughs> it's it's a debunked, it, it shouldn't actually be called a theory because a no. theory actually is, is a yeah, sort yeah. of a, a level higher. It's It's a hypothesis. It's saying that uh, at some point in our evolutionary history, all the features that we deem, you know, things that make us human in a lot of ways came from us having an aquatic stage of our evolution, which doesn't hold up in the fossil record. And also a lot of the things that are put forward as the aquatic ape theory can be found in other animals that aren't aquatic uh, and can also be found in our closest ancestors. So it makes the whole thing a bit, you know, a bit pointless. So they take it to its unnatural conclusion that somewhere along this line, the aquatic ape theory becomes true and you have this branching off of our ancestry goes off and becomes us. And the other half of our ancestry goes into the sea and becomes mermaids. Because why not? Um, and uh, I brought up a picture behind me at the moment, which we'll have to try and put up at some point, of the um, truly horrific looking ape men that they've got in the background uh you know it's they're like something out of a horror film these things they look nothing like a uh hominid i, I don't know where they went with these but um it's a good album cover though this it's a review there as well yeah, yeah I, was, I was thinking of screenshotting this and sending it to you <laughs> you can if you want so essentially yeah it goes through this whole sort of uh speculative evolution i really like speculative evolution you know it's it's that sort of fun to have with with science but you know at the end of the day it's speculative it's fictional it doesn't exist so essentially this this whole documentary goes on uh to the point where you have the military testing this sonar weapon which kills a bunch of whales and also manages to kill some mermaids as well and because that's the crying shame in that story (laughs) yeah (laughs) Also, the the thing annoyed me is it interspersed the entire thing of when talking about whales. It just seemed to pick any old species of whale that they put on on screen. It went from everything from sperm whales, the humpback, to pilot whales, you name it. And there was no sort of real, okay, it's obviously killing sperm whales. You know, so one minute you see a sperm whale swimming through the sea and the next minute there's a pilot whale dead on the beach. They weren't very, you know, there there, there wasn't much coherence with that. But yeah, the whole thing actually made people believe that this thing was true, which is damaging, like I say, to people wanting to, to learn about science. The other one that is very close to this as well is, and this one annoys me more than anything because it's to do with a prehistoric creature, an actual prehistoric creature, uh, Megalodon, the monster shark lives from 2015. This featured in Shark Week. That should tell you already that it's, you know, 
it's not great for sharks. No. Let's try and get people believing that a prehistoric species of shark is somehow back with us. The whole thing, yet again, it centers on this sort of fictional but factual rundown. Um, they've got a shark biologist who is <laughs> who is out looking for um, for sharks, and he keeps finding that uh, these extra large bites are being taken out of things in in South Africa. And essentially, it goes on to the thing of there is definitely a megalodon out here, you know, swimming around eating things, which is just not, you know, if there was a giant prehistoric shark, we would have seen it by now. We would have killed one. They also went extinct, you know, uh, two, two million years ago because the the diet that they had changed. But annoyingly, there is still very much this subset of things and annoyingly all you have to do is just type in megalodon on youtube and every second video is uh, megalodon lives proof or all these people who've seen megalodon in fact there was one that i found really uh, quite irritating it was a basking shark drew which uh, <laughs> i know we've talked about on here basking shark people insisting that it must be megalodon because it yeah. was huge and they saw it from a cruise ship yeah. that was the evidence they gave they're not in the same shape. Not even, no. not even slightly. I mean, this was a relatively large shark, but uh, not in any way close to the I'm getting annoyed, getting annoyed for you, Gareth. I'm getting annoyed too. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Was there any kind of warning at the beginning of these mockumentaries what? saying, like, you know, this is fictitious or anything like that? No, and that's the big issue. Yeah. Both of these ones don't give any disclaimer or anything. And Animal Planet have done this before. They've actually done a really, really good documentary that came out very similar in, uh, in time to these ones as well, but came out before it, and it was called Dragons. Uh, the, what was it? The, the fantasy history of the greatest animal that never to, never to exist. And it goes through this whole speculative evolution of a lineage of reptiles that have lived from the time of the dinosaurs and have evolved right the way through and became extinct in the Middle Ages. And it's brilliant because it, the whole thing lays out all this, you know, it's, it's totally and utterly implausible as well, but... Um it it tells you exactly what it is. It's not trying to be something it's not. And that's the problem that both of these documentaries fell into. I said documentaries. Is that they basically tried to sell people an idea and sort of trick people, but not in a fun, not you know, not in an April Fool's kind of way. It was done to basically provoke people. And both, of these, both of these documentaries provoked a lot of people, which obviously got them a lot of publicity. So whether it was a publicity stunt or not, yeah. Well, you're giving them more publicity. Well, I mean, thankfully, they're, they're long gone, these documentaries. <laughs> the third and final one that I wanted to go on to is, is probably more damaging in, in one way or another than both of those because, well, megalodons are extinct and uh, mermaids, well, I mean, I, I think the government's got them all locked up now, so we're good. We're good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so the, the third and final one was Eaten Alive uh, from 2014. And that was, yet again, another Animal Planet one. Now, I don't know whether you two have watched much Animal Planet over the years, but when I think of when I used to watch it years ago, it was actually quite good. A lot of the shows yeah. on there yeah. Yeah. were quite informative. And, you know, they just generally were, were good programs and documentaries about animals. But over the years, it's become far more sensationalized to the point of where most of the programs now are very much 
watch as this animal bites things or we're going to go out and annoy this animal and see what it does. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. In fact, there was even one program that I believe was on there called Monster Bug Wars, where essentially they got two different insects or invertebrates and stuck oh, them together yeah. and got them to fight to each other, which is not educational in any way. If you got a lion and a tiger and put them in a ring together and fight, people would be annoyed. And, yeah. you know, because they're invertebrates, no one was annoyed. Yeah, we so. did decide the society a while ago that that wasn't okay. Yeah, so yeah. it was it was basically cage fighting for for things like that, which you know I'm sure brought in some some uh, some viewers, but um, at what expense? You know, the expense of people learning and wanting to care about animals, yeah. which is probably the the main reason that they should be doing things. So yeah, this this eaten alive um, in 2014, there was a. Well, he called himself a snake conservationist. Essentially, what he wanted to do was have himself eaten by an anaconda, which poses quite a few problems in itself. He was essentially going to be swallowed and eaten alive, as the program laid out, by this anaconda. They had a huge amount of advertising around him being eaten alive. The program was called that. They advertised it for ages around this this sort of premiere, they built it up in the press and everything. Essentially, he was going to go out and catch a 25-foot-long anaconda, which is a bit of a stretch anyway. They do get that big, but they're not that common in the wild. He was going to get this anaconda to tack and swallow him. He was apparently going to be protected by wearing this protective suit, which was going to stop him from being killed, and then be regurgitated back out again. Uh, did you have a good look at this suit? You see it? Yeah, it's... Yeah. What was he going to do? Bit, it, it looks like he's gone to a sporting goods store in America and bought some American hmm. football armour. All right, uh, yeah. And a few extra little bits and sort of All right. taped himself up in it. Yeah, anything to keep himself breathing. <laughs> well, this is where it gets ridiculous. So not only could they not find a 25-foot-long anaconda, because, like I say, they are quite hard to find. They found a 12-foot-long anaconda which is considerably smaller than 25 feet. So they then tried to get this snake to feed on him, which if you've ever kept snakes or been anywhere near a wild snake, getting it to bite you is not as easy as people make it out to be. They generally just don't want to do anything like that. They only want to, uh, to do that if they're hungry. And even then, they're only going to do that if they consider you prey. And a 12-foot-long anaconda does not consider a human prey. Um, you know, things like rabbits and, you know, small rodents, birds, iguanas, that's their prey. So they pissed this thing off enough, and they did, which completely goes against the message of being caring for snakes and wanting to show them in a good light, which is something they kept on talking about and talking about throughout the entire thing, how he is passionate for people to love snakes. Well, you've just managed to really annoy this thing, to bite you on the arm, of which he then got very, very oversensitive as the animal then cons uh, started to constrict him. He then got a panic attack as the animal started to properly constrict him, which, considering the animals, uh, the, the snakes are known as constrictors, you should probably have figured this into your plan at the beginning. You know, the, <laughs> this is an animal that crushes its prey. So he had a panic attack and they had to remove the snake from him with no chance of the snake ever being able to eat him the whole program pretty much ends quickly after that point. Mm. 
Was yeah. he was he sort of expecting the snake to eat him like spaghetti? I, I'm guessing so. Like just sort of slurping <laughs> down. Well, bam! There he goes. I, I personally yeah. don't think he'd ever actually seen an anaconda eat. You know, no. I think I think he just thinks they come along like a sort of sock and just sort of go oh, over the top of things, and that's it, like in a cartoon. And he'll just be this nice human shaped lump. Yeah. But yeah, so there was an awful lot of people who went after Animal Planet for basically false advertising because they wanted to watch a program of a human being eaten alive. Yeah. I don't think that's the biggest crime. That's uh, not the biggest this, crime uh, in this which, thing, but which is uh, the sad thing enough. that is the biggest crime that was sort of the publicity side of things. People didn't yeah. care as much about the snake being okay. essentially forced into doing something that it didn't want to do. Um, people cared more about the fact that they didn't get to see a person being eaten alive by a snake. I mean, there are a few big issues with that anyway. Humans, yeah. our shoulders are far too wide for a snake to eat. And if if he'd have gone and found a 25 foot long anaconda and managed to get it to bite around him, it would have done the natural thing, which is to crush him to basically be a more manageable mm. shape. But even then, our shoulders are far too wide. So all that would have happened is he would have been crushed to death and he'd have had the uh, snakes over his head for a bit. So, uh, hmm. yeah, it's it's harmful in so many ways to people's Absolutely. views of nature, views of, of science and views of, of scientists as well, because people would class him in the same way of someone who is actually doing proper research uh, in that part of the world on anacondas, say. So uh, hmm. it's it's damaging overall. And I'm I'm quite glad that a lot of the documentaries like that don't seem to turn up very often. And certainly in the UK, I think there are sort of certain advertising standards for things like that that would mean that if you were to try and put it on something like the BBC or ITV, you would have to have a disclaimer. I was going to say, uh, between the three of us as well, you two have a lot more uh, reptile, especially snake experience than myself. But from my limited experience, whenever a snake has been in not great a mood around me, which thankfully was rare, and also, thankfully, I never had to worry if they were in a bad mood anyway, because none of them were that dangerous, as you guys know. Yeah, whenever a snake has struck me, it's always been very much, bang, now I'm getting the hell out of here. Yeah. Well, why didn't the anaconda yeah. up for that? Probably because they, they were holding it. Because they were holding it, and they just made it do it and do it and do it until it uh, yeah. sort of latched so was, on and then went, right, gonna, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, a snake of that size, trying to find one that's ready to have a large meal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because they're only eating like, anyway. Yeah, they're only eating like once every few Month. months or so, yeah, if even yeah. if even that. Just everything yeah. about this is so wrong. Like, if that guy, I know he'll never see this, but if you do, I hope you know that you're like not a conservationist, and yeah. every zookeeper would happily spit on you. Oh, uh, I think too far. Was... Sorry about that, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> there was an awful lot of people who, uh, who, who, yeah, basically said exactly that. You are not doing anything for conservation. Oh. You're not helping the image of snakes in in the general public's mind. You know, it's yeah, people just go and record a snake hunting. That's fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. People poo poo Steve Irwin a lot for mm. having you know annoyed animals in a, in a lot of ways, but even he did it in a, a respectful manner to a lot of the different animals. He mm. taught people an awful lot and inspired that sort of passion for those animals. He didn't just go, look, I'm going to go and get this wallaby to come and bite me or something, you know. Yeah, exactly. But it, it's the problem with TV and ratings and people who will be in charge. Yeah, They won't have a care in the world because all they're uh, thinking of is money. 
and ratings. And if it draws people in, then that's fine. And that's why we end up with TV channels full of absolute rubbish, things like Love Island and all of those sort of... Whoa, now. Yeah, well, I'm going to say... <laughs> well, we're, going, we're going for Love Island now. <laughs> Hollyoaks, all of that sort of rubbish. No! no. no. Jesus, a whole battleship of shots being fired. <laughs> right. If you leave neighbours out of it, we're all good. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, it's you know what I mean. It's it's that sort yeah. of thing where people aren't doing it because they care about animals. They're doing it because they care about ratings, and they will yes. find someone regardless of whether they are a scientist, a conservationist, or or anything like that, and pitch that idea. So yes. it's yeah, it's not great when that sort of thing happens. Though that's my rant over about three of the worst Discovery Channels slash Animal Planet uh, documentaries. Incre- I think that was an incredibly useful rant gareth because ultimately <laughs> you're just telling people to be aware of what they're digesting educationally and we oh yeah we absolutely should be and like you were saying earlier i used to have a lot of respect for animal planet and yeah uh discovery but as the years have gone on yeah they, they've become a joke they're an absolute joke to me i don't i don't even look at them anymore no no um no, just the I, same. Would, I would however recommend sure. tracking down that mermaids one on youtube it is kind of fun to watch it is an hour and something long, so it's oh. not a quick watch. But in fact, even better than that one is the dragons one. That is actually quite good. Yeah, that does uh, sound good. And it knows what it is. It doesn't yeah. lie. That's great. It's also narrated by John Hurt as well. So, Ooh. yeah, oh. that that should put uh, an age on it, I think. Yeah, that does put an age on it. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's you know, it's just one of those things. Anyway, let's go from our uh, pop culture rant uh, into our emails this week. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, it's now that time of the week where we go delving into our mailbag. We've got two questions this week. One provided by my better half. She actually asks, why do wombats have square poo? Or cubed poo? Which is something that I'd never really thought of before, but was really interesting to look into. Do either of you two know why wombats have square poop i have looked into it before and i actually can't remember the exact answer i do know that it's something to do with their diet and how it gets processed something because something they can't do is that correct i don't know you tell me yep no <laughs> yep, yep. That's, it's, it's very close to the point actually i was gonna get i was gonna be lazy and let you two answer um, <laughs> but, um essentially what uh it's to do with the fact that well there are three species of uh, wombat there's the southern hairy nosed there's the northern hairy nosed and the common wombat most people have probably seen pictures of the common wombat. It's the sort of cuter, smaller, fluffier one. The other two are basically armoured tanks of, uh, of wombats. They are actually so well armoured that they've been said to be able to kill a dingo by smashing the head of the dingo with their ass into the roof of their tunnels, mm. um, which is an impressive ability. They've got sort of an armoured back end. Anyway, that's not the point. The point being, the stuff that comes out of the back end. Wombats live in a variety of different habitats, but um, most of them live in dry scrubland, which is, you know, a good chunk of Australia is dry scrubland. The diet that these guys eat is pretty poor in nutrients, and so they eat a huge amount of vegetation. And it can take up to two weeks for this vegetation to pass through their digestive system. Most of it stays liquid until right at the very end where the wombat's body actually sucks all of the moisture as much as it possibly can out of the, uh, the feces uh, and pulls it back into the body because it's a water-saving, 
way of being able to stay alive in a very, very dry country. So, yeah, the, 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 um, the wombat's digestive system as well adds to this fact because it has weird angular par- uh, parts to it. So as the, uh, the feces is passing through, it's liquid, liquid, liquid. And then all of a sudden it becomes very, very solid up against sort of angular bits of the digestive system. And as it comes out, uh, it basically forms this sort of square shape because it sort of hits angular bits. Although this is one of the things I, years ago, I'm going to play the I lived in Australia card. Mm. Years ago, when I lived in Australia, I did actually work with wombats, um, southern hairy nose wombats. And I can remember you've, you've gone deep into the I lived in Australia card there. <laughs> well, I can remember cleaning them out, but I don't ever remember looking at their poo and going, my God, it's a pile of cubes. It was just... stacks, right, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> it was just stacked. Well, it was just poo, basically. You yeah. sort of swept it away. But mm. if you look at pictures of it, it's not perfectly square. It's not perfectly cubed. It does have flat mm. edges to it. But I'm, I must say I've seen sheep poo or or other animal poo that looks very similar to it in sort of shape you know at some point it's it's gonna happen essentially what the wombat that does though is it pulls as much moisture out of its poo as possible and it becomes quite solid quite quickly as it comes out and like i say it can take up to two weeks now you're saying about stacking it as well drew Mm. that's actually a useful byproduct of this because wombats tend to dig burrows that's where they live they want to advertise to any other wombats around. This is their burrow. If you're a male, you're obviously wanting to tell other males to bugger off. If you're a, uh, you want the females to come around. So it works very well to be able to have flat-sided poo because it sits there a lot easier on the edge of a burrow. It doesn't roll away. If you think of, uh, say, rabbit poo... They could, they could write your stuff up. With it, a, well, they basically yeah? could, yeah. It's so, like Minecraft. Yeah, basically, it's Minecraft poo. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's an idea there. So uh, essentially, yeah, it it can be stackable to an extent. Now, this got me thinking down a slightly different route as well. Have you ever heard of Diprotodon? Yes. The giant rhino-sized wombat that used to live uh, in Australia in the Pleistocene. Well, that got me thinking, does that mean that uh, if you're walking, you know, close to a uh, a Diprotodon that had just gone to the toilet, there'd be sort of brick-sized poo? You know, with, with the box. <laughs> with the first Aborigines who turned up in Australia, would they have been able to essentially build houses out of, you know, diprotodon poo and just basically have bricks of poo? You know, <laughs> could you have built a house yeah, with diprotodon poo? Looking at a comparison of diprotodon next to a human, obviously it's not real. Yeah, quite hefty, aren't they? You could probably get some decent oh, bricks yeah. out of that. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, some decent... Well, it gives, it gives new meaning to the word of saying someone uh, is going to lay a brick. All right. I'll so, uh, to brick shit out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could build both of them. You could. Yep. So, um, yeah, that's uh, essentially why they have square poo. But at the same time, oh. it's not really square. It's just... Squarish. Sort of squarish poo is probably the best, best way of putting it. Poo with an edge. So if you're ever, ever near a wombat, you see it pooing, have a look at its poo. Good look. Mm. Yeah, it looks. I'm looking at it now. It looks very similar to capybara feces, actually. But you got, like you say, it's just got the odd straight edge here and there. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I think what's happened is someone's seen some wombat poo and has got overly excited. Yeah, because when I remember when someone first told me about wombat feces being this cube shape, when you were in maths in school, did you ever have those little cubes you'd stick together? I don't know why. 
<laughs> you build silly shapes out of them. Yeah, um, but the Australia, expecting... they were made out of uh, they were made out of wombat poo in Australia. Yeah, I was, well, I was expecting these perfect square little cubes, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed by this. But at the same time, it's still it's still really interesting. Mm-hmm. It is. And I also see why the common one is a little bit more popular. No offense to the others, but they're not as cute. <laughs> I like Which the southern this? hairy nose. They're my favorite. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so Drew, Drew, you've got our second uh, email question. Um, yes. Take it away. Well, this, from, one, from... this one's a, a long, complicated one as well. Ooh. Yeah. Well, from, from Twitter. So, yes, it, uh, uh, Jack Falcaris, and they asked, can you get eco-friendly balloons or Xmas decorations? Uh, my girlfriend wants a plastic-free Christmas, but other than gingerbread decorations, which they can't have because of the dog, yeah, they want to know. They want to know that, but also they asked on that thought: Are Christmas trees actually ethical as well? So we've got a whole thing to delve into uh, here. And I made the mistake of just looking into the Christmas trees and not the uh, Christmas decorations. So bear with me. Or, well, actually, do you got? Do you guys have any input on the? Decorations? Well, yeah. Well, you go on. No, I was going to say the there is a there is a thought with the Christmas tree one. Hmm. Um, it's to do with uh, a species of tree in Australia that became quite popular essentially oh, after its, its discovery yeah it's, it's, a it's, it's a walnut i know what he's gonna say uh... <laughs> yeah my favorite tree i know and i'm gonna do a creature feature on this tree it's a cool point. tree it's a very cool tree <laughs> the wall of my pine you can get them all over the world now they're you know they're in in all sorts of nurseries but there was a big push about 10 years ago for a lot of people to have them as your australian christmas tree and you have it in a pot you bring it in for a brief period during the christmas period and then you stick it back outside for the rest of the year yeah um so in a, in a way that same sort of thing you could do the exact same with a variety of different pine trees yes. um or any kind of tree if you want if you want to go absolutely nuts and have a christmas palm tree you know <laughs> you could you could do that if it grows well in your particular part of the world why not and i think the star on top of that though well it depends <laughs> on how tall the palm tree is. <laughs> but um yeah, you know, you, if you've got a plant and you're bringing it in for that amount of time, why not? You know, I, I put the odd bit of tinsel and things on some of the plants that I've got in the house. None of them are tree-sized, but it's it's the perfect sort of thing to add a bit of, like, Christmassiness to it. Uh, and then you can stick it back outside. And eventually, once it gets to a certain size, you can plant it in your garden or, well, if you can't look after it, there are usually, there will be some places that will actually buy specimen plants off you. Or even some large botanical gardens might take large grown trees because they are uh, essentially, well, you know, a, a good size. So you've, you've grown it on. Mm-hmm. That would that, be where I'd go with it. I, I, that's a really good point, actually, to be honest. I mean, I, I, would, I would recommend sort of getting, I mean, if, if it's just sort of like a house plant and it will pretty much live in your house really for the rest of its life, you can sort of get whatever, really. But if, it, if it's something that then goes outside and you can plant it, I would recommend sort of getting getting a native tree if you can. I mean, I I did a thing on oak trees obviously a couple of weeks ago. Get yourself they're a little gonna, Christmas oak they're, tree. They're not going to look so good in winter. No, though. no, but you good. can. <laughs> they're slow growing. Yeah, that's that's true. It is slow growing. But that's but, good though. But well, yeah, I mean, imagine your your great great grandchildren going. This is Davo's oak tree. <laughs> yeah. How big is it going to be then? A Christmas oak tree. It's uh, it's I mean, huge. Yeah, it gets takes the entire family to move in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you just build your house around the tree. Yeah, um, but I did look into uh, before we go on to the balloons and, and decorations. I did look into the on, on the ethics of, of of Christmas trees. I mean, Gareth is I think is pretty much 
picked on the best thing you could probably do. Um, alternatively, you could also like make a Christmas tree mm. out of reusable things too. So you could use again. I don't. I don't want people to just go around grinding up all the driftwood, but you could make something out of driftwood. You could make it out of sticks and stuff, or something that you've got locally or nearby. Uh, you can make those sort of trees, or you can buy them too. But again, why not make it? It's a, it's you a can real... make surprisingly good ones out of milk cartons and things like that. My yeah. mum made one years ago. It actually looked really good. You know, you think, okay, it's going to be painted green. It's going to look really nasty, but it's they actually look quite good. And, you know, it depends on how good you are at doing sort of arts and crafts and that sort of things. But yeah, yeah. Well, again, you can buy you can buy them as well. You can buy these uh, sort of like reusable, not plastic based artificial trees. Well, sort of naturalist sort of trees, but it's not actually a real tree. Uh, but in terms of like the environmental impact of should you get a real tree or a fake tree? I did a little bit of digging on this and basically the consensus is that a real Christmas tree has a significantly lower carbon footprint. It does depend if you're importing it though, because obviously the mileage to get it to you uh, is going to have an effect. But so a, a two meter tree that has roots and is properly disposed of after its use by burning it on a bonfire or planting it or having it chipped um, has a carbon footprint of around 3.5 kilograms of CO2. And on the other hand, a two meter Christmas tree made from plastic has a carbon footprint measuring around 40 kilograms of CO2. So it's significantly different. Obviously, you could argue, too, that the plastic tree is reusable um, yeah. and you can use it over and over and over again each year. But again, it doesn't it is going to be disposed of at some point. Yeah. And that's then the problem. Well, I would say that. But my parents have had the same tree for going on about 30 years. Are you going to inherit that tree? Uh, no, I've got my own one, but oh. uh, I think they'll see. I, I'm one of those people who's had. Well, I mean, you've seen the Christmas tree that I've got. It, it is basically a plastic tree, and I've gone. I, I went down the thought of, okay, this is something that is going to be with me until it essentially falls to pieces. Yeah, but yeah, I, I also had a real Christmas tree at one point, which is really nice. It was a really nice smell and everything, but yeah, it, it was a bit of a hassle in some ways. Mm. I think basically your best option is it's not very Christmassy, but basically don't have a tree or do what Gareth suggested, which is getting hold of a, getting a hold of a plant and decorating it to be like a Christmas tree. And oh, then believe me, I want just, to have, just taking it back out, taking it back out in the garden again. Believe me, I want to have a Christmas wall on my pine, and I will one day. But they're very expensive, yep. and I just can't afford one. I support that decision, Gareth. <laughs> I mean, I did also grow like twelve giant redwoods as well which would be perfect christmas tree size now mm. but uh they're all over the place i don't actually have one left for myself oh, yeah sad oh. not necessarily a christmas tree related thing something i mean for years i've been not anti-christmas i won't say that but i've always oh, it's gonna say horrible i'm gonna look like such a scrooge but <laughs> christmas to me has always been such a season of greed not yeah, for everyone. Some enough. people just, you know, go and spend time with their family, but greed gets pushed on us a lot. I think that's a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, obviously, food, decorations that you guys say, material items. And it's something that's plagued my thoughts for years, too, actually. So I do have empathy with whoever wrote in this question. Sorry, I've forgotten your name. Uh, Jack um, Alcaris. Oh, there we go. Well, Jack, something that I have been doing on and off for years, something I'm going to try and get into more, but presenting gifts to people obviously comes in, you know, people wrap it. Some people don't wrap it. Um, I've often done that. Gareth, you presented me gifts before with custom-made wrapping, haven't you? Oh, yeah. Um, which is <laughs> that are actually reused. 
Um, I've actually got gift sacks, which are literally little decorative bags. You put your gift in, pull the drawstring, present it to said person. When they're done with it, they give it straight back to you. Because let's face it, they're not going to want to keep it, are they? It's, it's just the wrapping. So that saves a lot of paper. And I also don't get people cards, much to my mother's dismay. If she hears I'm this, she'll also be the same me out. Yeah, same yeah. thing. But decorations, that's, that's a bit of a minefield because... I'm thinking of decorations now, and the vast majority are plastic. I'm sure you can make some little wooden ones, or ones yeah, you can make stuff. Again, it depends if you're reusing. If you're just constantly reusing them, then yeah. there's less of a problem. Well, what I've what I've tended to do with my decorations is I've I've picked things that have had some sort of meaning or significance, like yeah. small, like uh, like a small teddy or something that someone's bought or has come from somewhere that has no use anywhere else throughout the rest of the year and it's perfect to just stick on on a tree because it you know it's it's just there I, I got given like one of those waving sort of wooden snakes the ones that just sort of like flop around and supposed to imitate like the movement of a snake i have no use for that whatsoever i thought i'm not going to get rid of it so i'll I, it, it works perfectly well in a christmas tree yeah mm. you know yeah, i've also got a, an iguana in there as well that i got that i've had for years and Works perfectly well as a Christmas iguana. You know, looks really <laughs> yeah. weird. But then again, it's a tree inside. There's nothing natural about that in the first place. You know? Yeah, just have a just have a really eclectic Christmas yeah. tree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. tradition's the issue, isn't it? But it can come from small things like you know, a, a, a very simple wooden decoration or you know, pine cones or something like that. Can yeah, be yeah, yeah. I was about to say pine cones too. Um, as for just quickly onto balloons, basically the answer is no. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think there. I don't think there is any any sort of eco-friendly balloon, and I would oh. no one ever buying balloons ever. Yeah, definitely. Ever. Same family, yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, I you know I know they're fun, but ultimately you let them go, or even when you just let them down and throw them in the rubbish, where they're going to end up? Well, you know where they're mm-hmm. going to end up in the nostril of a turtle somewhere. Yeah, not just turtles as well. The amount of livestock that get killed. Yeah, as well. Yeah, 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 of course, yeah. Can we branch out that complaint also to uh, Chinese lanterns being released? Oh, yes. yes. The, similar yeah, yeah, ilk. Uh, again, pretty things. And they've been done. I've been to funerals and stuff where they've been released before I was better versed on this subject. And I feel very guilty. But yeah, if you're a person that's ever used any of these things, don't feel guilty. Just make a change. No, no, no. Yeah. Mm. That's all you need to do. Yeah. There are better. Th- In fact, there are really good. Uh, I, I believe there are companies that do actually sell native butterflies that you can release at events. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> so, you know, forget having balloons. I mean, this is in the sense of, like, releasing balloons or something. You could release native butterflies, which is pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. awesome. That's yeah. good, yeah. Um, Plant a commemorative tree. That's kind of my idea for everything now in life. Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> We're getting married. Tree. Am I dead? <laughs> tree. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Or a wetland. Or a wetland. Or yeah, a beaver. Being married, <laughs> wetland. In comes a wetland. I'll be happy as long as I've got a tree or a beaver. <laughs> and the beaver yeah. will be happy anyway. with the tree. Well, yeah, I, I, I mean, it. I hope that question is answered somewhat well. I mean, well done for trying to go for a plastic-free Christmas. Um, yeah, definitely. Because, yeah, a massive props to you. Uh, it is difficult, but there are, there are alternatives out there. I think wood is probably the best sort of port of call particularly if you can sort of like source the wood yourself and make something yeah definitely and another thing when it comes to like shane was saying for christmas things is is it's very much this sort of you know you just go out and buy whatever as a Mm. present and it's just 
crap that just ends up sitting there for like a week and then is got rid of. If you know that that person is probably not going to like it and you're just buying it for the sake of buying things, why not, I don't know, food is always a good option, you know, mm-hmm. like buy or make some food to give to someone, a cake, for instance. At the very least, that is just going to rot down in a bin somewhere. It's it's not going to be unbiodegradable for 10,000 years. It's yep. uh, a lot less of a uh, a hassle for the environment. And they're probably going to like it more than some novelty joke thing or other that uh, has no use whatsoever. Yeah. Agreed. Or ceramic. Ceramic or was ceramic. also... Uh, ceramic is, is biodegradable. It's made of clay. You can get, you get ceramic decorations as well. I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather the cake. A more fragile. Like, but yeah. Well, yeah, I'd rather... Bubbles used to, be, used to be glass, didn't they, Bubbles? Yeah. 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 Hmm. Although with your cat, Drew, I'd imagine... Glass baubles would be a very bad idea. I think that's why people moved away from them. Probably, cat, <laughs> yeah. I think cats alone was cats. the fucking reason because I've had a couple <laughs> Christmas trees ripped down by cats. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that hopefully answers that question. But if you two listener have a uh, question for us, uh, we can well hopefully answer. <laughs> you can email us uh, at thenathistorycupboard at gmail um, you can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook uh, with our Twitter handle, which is at NH Cupboard, where there's always loads of uh, interesting things going up throughout the week. But uh, that brings us to the point of the show where I say thank you again for joining us. Well, a big thank you to Shane for filling in for Aaron mm, for us this Shane. week. It's been, uh, been good having you on. Uh, you're emotional. welcome, gentlemen. It's been, it has been emotional. It's been ups and there's been downs. But I've, I've, most of it, I've, been, I've enjoyed all of it. It's been really fun. I've learned lots. Very good, very good. And a big thank you to you, Drew, as well, for, for being here as well. Oh, I mean, you're welcome. Good, good. And uh, obviously, a big thank you to you at home for listening to us as well. So uh, that basically just brings me to say um, we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Bye-bye. No more mutants? No more mutants? <laughs>